Welcome to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. The border can be a deadly place. Heat and rough terrain combine with assaults to put migrants and border patrol agents at risk. This week, we continue our look at the border by numbers with the dangers of the desert. The Border Patrol has reported a record number of apprehensions along the U.S.-Mexico border this year. That number does include about a 30 percent recidivism rate. When you combine the apprehensions with a record heat wave this summer in Arizona and other border states, that's led to a high number of deaths in the Sonoran Desert. Customs and Border Protection uses an array of technology and agents to track and catch people crossing the desert and help the ones in trouble. One of those tools is a fleet of helicopters. Good morning, DM Tower. Troy 113 is with you. Uh, Customs throat for an A-Mountain departure. Troy 113, this one, Tower. Good morning. Departure we on risk, wind 140 at 5. On the go, 113. Doug Murray is a veteran pilot with Customs and Border Protection's Air and Marine Operations. This morning, we took off in an A-Star helicopter, call sign Troy 113, from the agency's facility at Tucson's Davis-Monthan Air Force Base. We headed south. The goal? Be available to help agents tracking people through the desert. And it didn't take long for the first call to come in. Good morning. Uh, we have a couple calls. I'll give you the Nevada one, which has been working for a little bit, and uh, see if we can help out with a group of 15. A record number of people have been apprehended trying to cross the U.S.-Mexico border during the current fiscal year. Murray says his experience this year backs that up. We're really seeing just a flood of humanity cross that border, and that flood of humanity is completely ill-prepared for. Border Patrol agents were searching an area in the mountains north of Nogales for two individuals who agents in a fixed-wing plane had spotted using infrared cameras. As we approach, Murray talks with agents on the ground, sometimes referred to as PA, to gather information and see how he can help. Agents made contact with about two, and then there's another one a mile north, and there's possibly two like a half mile east, so they're kind of spread out around those numbers you were given. Okay, I'm, I'm real close. Do you guys hear me or see me yet? Yeah, you flew just south of us. 113, can I give you cords to where the fixed wing possibly had two exact cords? Yeah, send it. 31 degrees, 26.32. That's 26.32. Negative 111 degrees, 12.37. 12.37. Okay, I'm right over that spot. And they were, he had two in there? Yeah, it was real thick, and he thought he had two heat signatures in IR. Yeah, that's right up on top of this ridge up here, where, uh, right off my nose if you're, uh, if you're looking at the helicopter. Due to a near-record monsoon, the normally rocky terrain is covered in lush grass and trees, which makes it hard to see anyone. So Murray drops the helicopter low enough to blow the trees and grass. Right here under me is I'm right on top of the coordinates right now where that where that where that he claims to have had it. So I'll start kicking the brush here. The images on the news of large groups of people waiting for border patrol agents after crossing the border is not who pilots like Murray are looking for. You know they're going to be young. Uh, seemingly fit males, and they're going to be all wearing camouflage, and they will resist border patrol agents. 
they're going to run from Border Patrol agents, they're going to fight, and uh, their, their goal is to get away. The monsoon-fed lushness of the landscape makes it difficult to see the agents on the ground, let alone anyone in camouflage who's trying to evade them. After about 30 minutes, Murray breaks off his part of the search without finding anyone. Agents will work it longer than I'll be able to work it because, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're day shift and they're out all day, you know, so this might be what they work the entire day. Um, at some point, they'll go, okay, well, we'll wait until they cross another point north where they'll be detected. Most of the helicopter missions last four to five hours with pilots moving from call to call. The helicopter is the real-time eyes in the sky for ground agents, but they're part of a larger team that are dispatched from the Arizona Air Coordination Center, known as the A2C2. That's where Elisa Resnick picks up the story. So right now we're looking at a giant video wall about 80 feet large, and on here is essentially a map and what we call blue force tracking. That's Ryan Rakucci with the Border Patrol's Tucson sector. Around us, 911 dispatchers with headsets are working on computers. On the big screen in front, multicolored dots move in and out of a map of southern Arizona. And through that software and agents uh, with devices, it allows us to see each other like dots on a map, translate information, and it allows us to quickly organize and communicate to respond to events or rescues as fast as possible. When migrants dial 911 from the desert, their calls are answered here. Rokuchi says his team works to determine their location using the nearest cell phone tower. If the call only pings one tower. Then it's going to be a huge area that we have to quickly triage and figure out where did they cross, how long have they been walking, what landmarks are around, and then the team here will have to vector in the, the closest capability to make the, the rescue. It's midday in early August, just over 90 degrees outside. Bearable for southern Arizona during this time. But a few months ago in June, a brutal heat wave sent desert temperatures soaring past 115 degrees. Rikuchi says back then they received 30 to 40 911 calls a day. They called in extra personnel to help. We had uh, professional medics here, paramedics here on the floor to help with the correct triage. And then everybody sharing information to figure out, OK, who's going to go where first? Some of those calls make it to pilots like Doug Murray, who we heard from earlier. So right now, this year, we have 50 poised Hearst rescues out of the Blackhawk. A Blackhawk is a type of helicopter employed by the Border Patrol. Murray says it's often used for rescues because it can transport extra agents who are trained to give medical aid. As the pilot of an A-Star helicopter, Murray says his job is to find the person who needs help. Confirms that he's there, checks to make sure that he's ambulatory, he's standing, he doesn't look like he's in extreme or severe distress, and then we notify the Border Patrol that, hey, in fact, the caller is there, this is where he's at, this is what he's doing. CBP says apprehensions across the border are the highest they've been in two decades. Data also shows the number of rescues are way up from last year. That's true across the entire border with Mexico, except in the Tucson sector. Agency data shows the sector made 225 rescues between last October and July of this year. That's less than half what it was during this time last year. During the heat wave in June, when a record number of bodies were found in the desert, the sector reported just 10 rescues. We asked multiple people within the Border Patrol in Tucson and at headquarters in Washington, D.C., why? Stephen Atkinson, Division Chief of Operations for the Tucson sector, says while other sectors are rescuing large groups and families, 
Most who need help here are migrants on their own. It's not that the numbers are going down. It's just a different type of accounting now. He says this year, many smugglers are guiding migrants by cell phone from the Mexican side of the border and breaking people off into smaller groups. Last month, B, a 25-year-old asylum seeker from Honduras, was on one of those peaks. We're only using her first initial for her safety. B says she left home first because an ex-boyfriend was in prison back in Honduras, and she and his family were receiving threats. She also lost her job during the pandemic. She moved to a bigger city to find work, but gangs there started pressuring her to sell drugs. She fled after they nearly killed her friend, who refused their demands. She's tried five times to cross through the Arizona desert. She says every time has been so hard. But she keeps trying because she knows she can't go back to her country if she wants to survive. She says each time the Border Patrol has found her, she's tried to tell them the same thing. I need asylum. I need help. But they never listen, she says. She's sent right back across the border to Mexico under the pandemic-era protocol Title 42. On her last attempt in July, she tumbled down a steep ridge when she got scared and ran away from the border patrol. She says she knew right away that something horrible had happened to her leg. She says she dragged herself under a tree for shade, but she couldn't bear the pain in her leg. She thinks she waited there for an hour, screaming out as a helicopter circled above and Border Patrol agents tried to catch other migrants in her group. Finally, she managed to flag down an agent to help. He transported her to a hospital in Arizona, where she found out she'd broken her tibia. But a day later, the Border Patrol sent her back to Mexico. In a photo taken in Nogales, Sonora, her right leg sits in a black brace, and a purple hospital gown swallows her slight frame. It's the only clothing she was dropped off with. Now, like many migrants, she's stuck in Nogales. This week, a U.S. Supreme Court ruling mandated the return of the Migrant Protection Protocols. That's the controversial Trump-era program that forces asylum seekers to wait in Mexico. Rights advocates warn the ruling could drive even more people to attempt a journey through the desert that could cost them their lives. Already this year, the Pima County Medical Examiner's Office says it has received more than 140 sets of human remains found in the Arizona desert. The number is on pace to set a new record. But despite everything, B isn't giving up. She says that claiming asylum is a human right, and she has no other choice. So as long as she is able, she says she's going to keep fighting to reach safety. For nearly 20 years, U.S. presidents have promised to hire more Border Patrol agents. As a result, the Tucson sector has the largest number of agents on the U.S.-Mexico border. Border Patrol Tucson Sector Chief John Maudlin says having that many agents is a good thing. Tucson sector has more than 3,400 Border Patrol agents. Um, it is, you know, when it, in terms of personnel, I think every sector would say they could use more personnel. Um, holistically, when we look across the border, the flow is very different in other places than it is in Tucson. We recognize that. Fortunately, um, you know, the solution to, to border security is not strictly personnel. There's also 
infrastructure, there's, there's, um, there's technology and, and Tucson of all the sectors probably has the greatest situational awareness due to its technological laydown. So um, the, the number of personnel is not, is not solely the only, the most important thing. Certainly we rely heavily on technology as well. Looking at the stats again out of Washington, Tucson has generally the highest or close to the highest number of agents. If you could get more agents, what would you do with them? So more agents just means more border security, you know, absolutely. And then, of course, it is more people to, to respond to everything that we've, we've talked about, the, the rescue calls that, that we deal with all the time um, and just everything else that, that comes up in that, in that border environment. There are different types of agents with different jobs, um, like like any law enforcement agency. One we do hear about is Borstar agents, which are the the specially trained rescue agents. Are they out acting, for lack of a better term, as regular field agents and then get called in when their particular training is needed? They are out there in the field all the time doing, doing border patrol agent work. Um, and then when there is a situation that requires that special skill set, they, they are the first ones to respond. Now, realistically, any agent in this sector can perform a rescue. Um, but, you know, a lot of these rescues take place up in the mountains. And th the only way to get up there is a helicopter and then to rope somebody out of the helicopter. So, um, you know, that's not going to be me roping out of the helicopter. That's going to be a Borstar agent that is um, specially trained to rope out to um, provide aid once they get to the person. Many times this is somebody with a broken leg, with a head injury, something like that. They can provide aid. Um, many of them are um, EMTs. We have paramedics out there. And so they, they do, they perform what they need to potentially get that person in a litter and then attach to the litter and, and hoist out with them under the helicopter. Incredibly dangerous for the agents, dangerous for the helicopter crew to be close to the mountain and performing those things. Um, so, but again, any agent can perform a, a rescue. Many agents do. Uh, because they're often going to be the first person at, at the scene. That was Tucson Sector Chief John Maudlin. This week, we're wrapping up our look at the border by numbers, specifically delving into the dangers for migrants crossing the desert and the agents trying to catch them. The Border Patrol tracks not only rescues, as we talked about in the first part of the show, but also assaults on agents and the number of times agents use force to stop a migrant. According to Border Patrol data, there were 39 assaults on agents in the Tucson sector since October of last year. Sector Chief John Maudlin says some years are worse than others. You know, obviously, the more people you deal with, the more um, the more likely you are to be assaulted uh, during the during the, uh, the the commission of your of your your duties. What do they learn about? how to defend themselves against assaults. So hopefully they don't even start, but if they do what they then do. Interesting even in, in, in your question is, you know, how to prevent an assault before it happens, which I think is the, is the key that, that is one of the, the primary things that is taught is officer presence, you know, is, is being able to, um, to control a group without, without any use of force, right? And without um, endangering yourself and sort of letting someone in there know that potentially may think about assaulting that that's a bad idea um you know and so i think officer presence obviously is the, is the first part of that and then secondarily it's it's the the training of when to use force when is it proper how much force to use in these situations um and, and all of that is guided by by policy i know over the years talking to state troopers they say one of the toughest part 
uh, in many states that I've talked to them, is especially in rural areas, they're out there by themselves. Backup is a long way away. I would assume it's the same for agents generally. So if there's an assault on them, they're on their own for a little while. So that's correct. Um, the border, the border is very interesting. And again, I've worked in all environments of it. You know, northern border, southern border, the coastal border. Um, often we are the first responders to calls from assistance from other agencies when when they're being assaulted. Um, sometimes they're they're the first um, to assist us out in the out in the uh, in the border area because it is so remote. Highly unlikely that there's going to be another law enforcement agent there to assist. So it is generally going to be a border patrol agent there to assist. One of the things that we have in this sector, fortunately, is um, significant amount of air support from you know our partner, the the uh, Air and Marine Operations. Often we have we have border patrol agents that are on those flights with them, um, and in most of this environment, a helicopter is the fastest way to get someone to somebody else to, for backup. So um, that is utilized a lot. When can an agent use force, and how does an agent determine what the appropriate amount of force is? That also is one that takes um, a lot of a lot of consideration to, to, to figure out. So agents, they know to use, they're, they're trained to use the minimum amount of force necessary to effect an arrest. So, um, you know, they look at, is the, is the person presenting an imminent threat to them or to somebody else? What's the severity of the crime that sort of brought them into that um, to begin with? And then is there more risk to to other other people, to third parties? And with that, then again, they use the force that would be objectively objectively reasonable in those situations. And um, if you're not aware, the CBP use of force policy is available online. It's on cbp.gov, and that's that's what they're trained under. When it comes to use of force, looking at the the data and statistics border-wide, it seems like it varies greatly sector to sector. Yuma has fewer than Tucson, but Tucson has fewer than some of the Texas sectors. Is that, again, related to who's coming across? So um, broadly, if, if, I, if I was to take a guess at it, I, I would say that that's probably cr- true. You know, you're very likely or less likely, you would think, to see um, to see use of force used against our agents or see assaults on agents in places where it's generally groups that are giving themselves up, right? That, that, that would not help them. Um, when you deal with our environment, our demographics that are, um, you know, the vast majority, as I explained, are doing everything they can to avoid apprehension, much more likely that they would be assaulted, which then in turn would, would, um, would have an agent use force to, to get compliance from that subject. So, um, and then, in other places, if it is higher, then it's probably, I, again, guessing, uh, due to the amount of flow over there. You know, where, where Tucson sector is seeing maybe 4,000 um, encounters a week, some of these other sectors are seeing 20,000. So, When it comes to use of force, there's been a lot of talk around the country the last couple of years with law enforcement. So if there is a use of force incident with an agent, Walk me through the process, what happens to determine whether or not that was a justifiable use of force or maybe they could have used less force or something like that. Sure. So, so every sector has a, um, a use of force review board. Well, within every, it's not within sector because it's not, it's not owned by the Border Patrol, but there's a use of force review board that's made up of 
a representative from the Border Patrol, from the Office of Field Operations, and from the Office of Air and Marine. And, um, and then they're, they're the voting members of these boards. So they look at all the use of force incidents that have taken place over whatever select period of time. Um, and if they believe there's a violation of, um, of policy in their misuse of force, then that is then in turn um, um, referred to the Office of Professional Responsibility, which would do the investigation. And the Office of Professional Responsibility is a part of that board as well as our, our attorneys as well, the Office of Chief Counsel. That was Tucson Sector Chief John Maudlin. When it comes to use of force, the Tucson sector does not lead the nation, but it has its share. Since October of last year, the Border Patrol has reported nearly 600 incidents involving agent use of force across the U.S.-Mexico border. But the Border Patrol's own process for reporting those incidents is just one piece of a much larger system. Elisa Resnick reports on what these incidents look like from another side. Nearly 20 percent of this year's use of force incidents occurred along the border in Arizona. Chief Maudlin says agents are required to carry at least one so-called non-lethal weapon, like a baton or taser, along with a gun and magazines. The minimal amount of force necessary to, to affect the arrest. So if the person is just sort of, um, you know, just struggling and squirming, then that's generally going to be just hand techniques. Of course, the very first technique is just vocal commands. Put your hands behind your back, spread your legs, you know, that sort of thing. Agency data shows the majority of incidents this year involve the use of non-lethal weapons. Agents use guns the least often, 15 times border-wide this year. The agency doesn't report on how many of those incidents are fatal. But a database launched this month by the ACLU in Texas uses media reports and CBP press releases to make a count. They found 177 people have died during CBP interactions since 2010, including 12 minors. Over the last two decades, Tucson attorney Bill Reisner estimates he's handled about a dozen cases for people hurt or killed during encounters in Arizona. Citizens can sue any agent of the federal government under the same circumstances that you could sue a person. So if a person runs into your car, assaults you, uh, does something that you would have uh, legal uh, opportunity to sue the person, you can sue the United States under the Federal Tort Claims Act. These aren't criminal cases. They are not heard by a jury. Plaintiffs sue for damages, and decisions are made by a single federal judge. Reisner has taken on suits that involve fatal shootings by agents and Border Patrol car crashes that left migrants seriously injured. He says these cases get complicated because of the border. If a bullet's fired by a Border Patrol agent wrongfully in the United States, but you're standing in Mexico and it hits you in Mexico, tough luck, you can't sue uh, our government. Last year, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that interpretation of the law is correct. Reisner says that further narrows the legal recourse that families and individuals have in cases like cross-border shootings. 
Outside the courtroom, people with complaints about CBP conduct can file official claims with federal oversight agencies like the Office of Professional Responsibility and the Office of Inspector General. Joanna Williams with the Kino Border Initiative has been helping migrants with that process for the last six years. She says she's documented everything from serious use of force claims and sexual assault to medical neglect and due process issues. But she says it's not an easy system. The public-facing complaint mechanism, so what a migrant could access if they didn't have uh, somebody on staff at KBI helping them file the complaint, uh, really does in some ways feel like a black hole. Williams says that's especially true because of how long complaints can take to get a response from the government. She says more serious allegations can lead to investigations. But the process can take years. She says that's time migrants don't always have. The majority choose not to come forward. So a lot of people are very nervous about what the implications would be for them, um, especially if they are detained on another occasion. They say, well, what if that Border Patrol agent can look up uh, what happened to me and see that I complained and then they're going to treat me more poorly? But she says most who do want to file a claim do it for other migrants. A deep sense of justice and solidarity with other migrants who say, well, if this helps it not happen to somebody else, then I'm willing to complain. Um, understanding people's rights and, and really wanting to work to defend them. That's one of the reasons that led B, the Honduran migrant we heard from earlier, to talk about her treatment in the desert. At the hospital in Arizona, she says doctors told her that her broken leg required surgery and prescription medicine. But she was sent back to Nogales, in her hospital gown, without either. She spoke with a federal investigator about all of that this month. She hasn't heard anything back yet. She says by telling her story, she hopes people can see that migrants like her are leaving everything behind. They're coming to the border because they have no other choice. We all leave for a reason, she says, and she thinks everyone deserves to have peace, freedom. And above all, she says, they deserve not to be afraid. For The Buzz, I'm Elisa Resnick. And that's The Buzz for this week. Be sure to visit our website to see all of the data for the Tucson sector and the entire U.S.-Mexico border. There you can also find additional interviews and discussions about the border by numbers. You can also find all our episodes online at azpm.org and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for The Buzz Arizona. We're also on the NPR One app. Elisa Resnick helped produce this week's show. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer. Duncan Moon is the interim news director. And our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.